you know, I mentioned money is the easiest measuring stick, right? Like it, that's easy. It's, it's easy to get to age 65 and say, I have $1 million, $3 million, $5 million. I don't care how many millions of dollars. Whatever the number is. Whatever the number is, I've been successful, right? Like I've made it. And then your entire life is in shambles. And it's, it's not a good measuring stick. Um, I see it all the time. I have clients who make bukus of money. I have clients who don't make a lot of money at all. And I'll tell you right now, I have two people very specifically in mind in each one of these camps. And I was like, I would pick that person with low income. I would pick to live their life any day over the other one, any day. We forget, how do you quantify being able to take time with your kids? How do you quantify that? You can't with numbers, right? And, but yet we only look at the numbers. And I think it's such a danger that we have to play. It's this, it's this tension, it's this balance that we play in. Welcome to the Healthy Love and Money Podcast. If you find money to be the number one, two, or even third largest source of stress in your relationship, then you're in the right place. Going beyond how to budget, invest, and do your taxes, we're going to explore financial intimacy. Discover how to talk with your partner about your shared financial life. Let's take the awkward and painful out of money conversations. Join me and hit follow to listen to weekly inspiring, healing, and motivating interviews with financial therapists, couples therapists, and financial planners, and so many more. Let's go on the journey of financial intimacy together. Okay, this is the perfect way to start this. I'm laughing already because Hannah and I have had a pre-show conversation and she's smiling big. You guys are only going to hear the words, but you're going to hear the energy and the, and the fun that's about to happen. Hannah Moore is with Amplified Planning. The way that I've gotten to know her is through her amazing externship. I think she's leading something over like 800 financial planners currently through her financial planning externship, which is basically helping new financial planners learn how to do financial planning, not the how it how investments work, taxes work, but like how do I actually talk to my clients about this stuff? And yes, I've been participating in it because I'm trying to knock the dust off of some of my CFP skills and get that up to speed. And it's been incredible. So that's a long-winded introduction. Hannah, welcome to the show. Thank you for spending some time with me on the Healthy Love and Money podcast. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me, Ed. And I just I just love all the work that you're doing. So so happy. I was so excited to see the invitation. Yeah, absolutely. So tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself. How did you become a financial planner? And what are you up to in your professional life as a financial planner these days? Yeah, so I um, had no idea financial planning existed as a career. I'm I'm so curious what this conversation is going to go with you, Ed, um, where we're going to go in different directions. But I grew up in South Dakota, where my mom was a stay-at-home mom with me and my four brothers, and my dad worked at Walmart. And so I realized recently that when I grew up, I didn't know anybody who had to have um, a college degree to do their job outside of teachers. And so it, you know, I went to school, I went to college. Um, so I went down to Baylor in Texas to go to school because I was just kind of good at school. And I just kind of knew that was what I was going to do. Uh, but there was no framework of what a professional job did, did, like what that meant at all. I had no roadmap for it. And so I just wanted to help people. That was, that was what I wanted to do. So I decided I was going to do nonprofit management. So really went all the way down that track and uh, was working in a nonprofit. I started with answering the phones. By the end, I was like the right-hand man to the finance director. I got to do some really, really cool stuff. Amazing experience. And I came home one day and I was like, I cannot do this the rest of my life, which is like the opposite of how I normally am. I'm like, I will bang my head against that brick wall until that brick wall gets down. But for whatever reason, I realized that this wasn't going to be, wasn't for me. And I had taken an intro to personal finance class and the professor, like quite truly the next day, pulled me up, like called me up after class and was like, you, you're just doing so well. You need to consider changing your major. And so I said, okay, I'll, I'll do it. I truly had no idea. And the next day was the last day to sign up for my senior um, classes. And so if I hadn't made that decision, I wouldn't have been able to even change my major um, at that time. So it felt very just kind of like all the stars aligned. Um, it was, you know, what it was. And so, yeah, I got a degree in financial planning, had no idea. I assumed I was going to be making 12 or $13 an hour for the rest of my life because um, that's what I had seen, right? That was the only kind of framework. And that was that nonprofit pathway. And so it was a very foreign kind of stepping into this. So that's kind of how I got into financial planning. I'll give you my quick career synopsis if you want, or 
I see you thinking there. You can t- you tell me how you want me to go, Ed. I mean, this is already setting the stage for the interview on so many levels. So just out of my own curiosity, it sounds like your dad's work at him at Walmart was not like he was not a corporate executive for Walmart. He was working. What kind of role was he in? In the shoe department. Yep. So he, um, when I was a junior in high school, he ended up leaving um, and he started um, his own kind of business. Um, and so, so he's had a couple of career iterations since then. But yeah, that's, that's what it was. Yep. And so he would, they always were, I mean, for as long as I could remember growing up, my mom would, you know, she threw newspapers in the morning and my dad would clean carpets in the evenings. And so a lot of like my memories of spending time with my family, it was, I mean, I know how to clean carpets. Like, <laughs> you know, that's a, it's one of my skills. So I, that's how we would spend time together um, would, would be by doing those things. So. And I really appreciate you sharing that. And I think it's, it's, it can be a tender spot for people. And sometimes it's a source of great pride and, and it can be, it mean a lot of different things, what our childhood experiences are with our parents and their work. And, you know, I know for me, I grew up the son of an electrician. And so that was my context, right? And my dad drove a white utility truck and he would have on-call duty every month, you know, a weekend for a month or something that he'd have to drive to a parking garage to go fix a parking gate, you know, that goes up and down. And when I was old enough, I would go with him and see, you know, what he was doing because I was a kid and I wanted to go and I was curious. So, no, I think, you know, our childhood experiences with our parents were profoundly shape us. And yet as a child, we don't really understand how much it's shaping us during the time that it's happening. Mm-hmm. And it's so much, you know, so much of so I'm a financial planner now. I get insights into all these different roles and jobs and clients and just these unique situations. And, you know, I often say money is the easiest measuring stick. Um, and there's so many things wrong with that, right? Like there's just so many things wrong with that. And so one of the, so we, um, so growing up with this, I've struggled getting help. Like when I've needed help, um, because I should be the one to be able to do it all, right? Like I saw my parents work incredibly hard. Now I have three small children under five, running multiple businesses, doing all the things. And so I remember talking to my mom one time. And she's like, Hannah, like, she's like, you just need to hire somebody to help clean your house and do your laundry. So like, we, we, we now pay somebody to clean our house and do our laundry. Right. right. And I had so much like angst or guilt or just all these complex emotions around it. And because I felt the, there were a lot of things I felt around it, but what my mom said to me when I was talking to her, cause I was, I don't think I realized I was doing this, but I was, she was writing this. And I remember just saying something about how I can't do this. And and it was, it was about how I viewed the person. I can't remember exactly what I said, but what she told me was, Hannah, don't you dare take away their dignity. And I was like, ooh, like that, that struck a chord to me. And so when I think when we start talking about people, and this is what I think about a lot in financial planning, is we look at this, hey, higher incomers, you know, the way wealth management is right now, it definitely has a bias towards helping people with a lot of money. And I think sometimes those biases of more money is better or those more of like not looking down, but the, uh, there is a sense sometimes of people like, like, oh, they make a lot less. It's like, that's taking away their dignity. It's like, no, no, no. Like it's, it's a whole different framing and realizing that like people are supporting their families. Like there's so much value to that. And I never want to be in a position where I look back and be like, oh, my, we grew up so poor. It's like, no. That, that's taking away the dignity of what my parents did. It's taking away the, you know, it's, it's like, I don't know. I, I have, that's always just oh. kind of a framing of how I think about some of this. I really appreciate you sharing that. And I think, you know, one of the big issues that I, I continue to work through in my own psychology is the issue of social class. And what does it mean to be a member of society and how does society see me versus how do I see myself? And, yeah. and that, you know, I think that overt and covert taking of someone's dignity because they're not in the same social class position is so endemic in our culture. And I think what I've come to appreciate is it, it kind of some way goes both multi-directional. It goes up and down the class ladder, if you will, right? Like people from the lower class try to take the dignity of the wealthy and the wealthy try to take the dignity of... And so we're all guilty of it to some extent. And you know, I, I think, you know, how do we honor everybody and their labor is kind of this big question. And I don't have the magic answer to that. I mean, maybe you do, Hannah, but. I've learned there's some problems I can help with and others I can't. 
But I remember one of the very first client meetings that I got to sit in on. So I got an internship and this meeting, uh, I couldn't even tell you the client's names, right? But um, it was a doctor and a banker and they made a lot of money. Like, especially for me at that time, it was a lot of money. Uh, And so their eating out budget, their annual eating out budget was more than I made my first year as a professional, like first full year as a professional. So you can kind of get some of the, the context of this. And I remember sitting in that meeting, it was first ever financial planning meeting. And I've already told you my background and kind of how I, how I view the world growing up. And I remember sitting there and being like, okay, on paper, I can't relate to them. But when I heard from them, I was like, oh, I've heard that before. Oh, that resonates with me. Like, what did they care about? They cared about their relationships. Why were they eating out so much? They were eating out because they have really busy lives. And that was the only time that they could connect with their family and friends. And then they would pay for everybody because they couldn't afford to go to the restaurants that they wanted to go to. They cared about their children. It was part of the conversation was funding money for their kids. My parents cared deeply for us. They wanted the best that they could for us. Um, It looked different because their situation was different. But that same underlining thing was right there. Like, it was like, it was like I sensed in that meeting, it was like, I couldn't relate to the numbers, but just everything else I could relate to. And I was like, oh, I've seen this before. And so I think, so one of my kind of theses, one of my hypotheses in the work that I do is, you know, we all have this relationship to money. We all have this, like, how do we relate to money? And, and you, depending on how much money you have, it's kind of, it's packaged a little bit differently, right? So if you were like wrapping a present, it's, you know, some are going to be really big and elaborate with lots of bells and whistles. And you know what? Some are going to be like a really cool, minimalist, like brown bag that's like super, you know, cute with a really cute bow on it. And um, but it's so when I think about money, it's it's this core is the same. It's how we relate to money. I mean, you, Ed, you're the one who can really speak to this, but I'll tell you, my clients, some of my most content, happiest clients are living off of Social Security. They don't touch a penny of their money, but they just have this really happy, fulfilled life. Um, and I have some clients who have. Bukus of money, that's an official term, bukus of money, and they're not satisfied. And, and so it's, it's, to me, it's, this, it's like, what's this relationship with money that we have? And the amount of money that you have is just how the packaging is different for it. And, and again, that's a very hard thing, you know, especially, you know, I'm, I don't know, 10, 14 years into this business now, and I've seen a lot of different situations. And that's a hard thing for people to like connect with that. Yeah. Even if you get, even if you double your salary. Yes, money does make things more convenient without a doubt. And you're still going to have a lot of the same issues. The money just, the amount of money just changes the packaging on it. Uh, Yeah, this, and speaking like, and this is something that's been so neat for me, Hannah, as I come back to the field of financial planning. And, you know, I've grown a lot, I guess, 17 years later from when I first entered. And the way we see and understand money from the experiences of working with our clients and having to think through all these things is that reality that just having more money, net worth or income is not enough to leave you psychologically comfortable, right? And the question that I ask myself often is, especially you know, as a financial therapist, what's my job? Well, my job is to help people feel psychologically more comfortable with their money. And contentment is a big part of that. How do we get people that feel discontentment with their financial life to a place of contentment? You know, that's a spreadsheet can't solve that problem. The time value of money, a good investment allocation or tax strategy is not going to solve that problem. But I think there's a lot of people trying to use, you know, good investment strategy and tax strategy to get to financial contentment. But like, I haven't yet seen those things deliver. So I'm curious your perspective. No, I would agree with you. And like, you know, I think about it like, I mean, I think, okay, so I'm a mom, three kids under five. So like my youngest, she just turned nine months old. Uh, so oh Wait, you're, you're here with me doing a podcast interview. I am so right? grateful. So you can imagine like the chaos that is my life, right? Um, at times, um, but I love it, you know, whatever, all the things. But what's interesting, so I think about like meal planning, right? So I, I mean, I'm notorious for going to the grocery store um, okay, so now I'll even like take my kids with me to the grocery store because it's a great way to like have an activity to do with them. Um, I'm slightly worried that my clients are get, my kids are going to tie like my love to shopping, but that's a whole other thing. But we, um, I'll take them shopping, and, but I don't have a plan. 
And so I come home and I have my refrigerator is full of things that I like, that things are good, but there's no plan. There's no cohesion for them. And then I find myself every night for dinner going to make food and it's disjointed. I don't exactly know what to do. And it's, it's adding stress to my life versus when I'm like, Hey, here's my plan. Here's my shopping list. Go with my kids or not. It's kind of irrelevant if I do my click list or not. Um, but then I come in and I'm like, Oh, this is what we're going to make for dinner tonight. It alleviates some of that stress. So I think when, you know, when I think about financial planning, like there is a lot of truth to getting clarity of like, Hey, what's my financial situation? What, how do we align this to make sure, like making sure that we have, like, we know what we're having for for dinner on Wednesday. I'm not having to think about that. Um, I can just come in and make it. So I think when I think of some of like the spreadsheet solutions, like some of that helps, like, so like there's some baseline things that we can help with. And then there's this other level, which I think is what you're, you're tapping into on this, like expectations and not just expectations, but like how, like how we connect with, with, with our money. It's like, we can have a perfectly aligned plan. I have clients with beautiful financial plans. I'm really good at that. With beautiful financial plans and they they can still have that disconnect. Right. And that's really where I think, you know, we can give space for our clients. Um, yeah. My mind is so blown right now. Like, it is, it, like, so true to form. I've seen so many of your pre-recorded videos for the externship. And I'm like, oh, I just love Hannah. She's just so thoughtful. And the analogies she used are so relatable. And like this food grocery shopping analogy is so relatable, right? And I think what I'm picking up is like, we can create the financial plan or we can create the meal plan. And it, it when done well, it can be a real help. Because like on Wednesday night, I'm cooking meatloaf with asparagus and a salad, you know, whatever. And that's great. And so you come home from work and it's like you pull out the meat and you pull out the asparagus and you do you go through the steps. But then sometimes you have the challenge of you have three kids and you have a husband who yep. inevitably one of them says, I don't want me left tonight. And you're like, oh, my best laid plan is blown to smithereen. <laughs> right. And so like, I mean, who hasn't had that experience? Right. So like I think that's kind of this juncture too, and part of the challenge of this financial planning process, like creating beautiful financial plans is good and can be helpful, but it, it actually takes this other layer of thoughtfulness that I think you're alluding to is, yeah, we got to make sure it's including all the people that it impacts. And then we got to realize like, it may not fit. It may not work. It may not fit. Yep. So we, so you, you've kind of alluded to some of the issues, you know, kind of around, we had a client meeting today. Um, with as one of my Amplify planning clients. And so as we teach from these, right? So we share these recordings of client meetings. And and so we did this whole thing around this client's pension. Like, so she has this like really cool, unique pension and like it's a huge part of her financial plan. And like, truly, like we teach from this. We have spent, I have spent so much time on this pension, literally first thing today. So they're getting rid of my pension. <laughs> and you're just like, really? And so, which is totally fine, right? that's just life, right? Like, you know, but you know, with my kids to, to, you know, keep going on the food analogy, I like make sure I have like, (laughs) this is a little embarrassing, three packs of hot dogs all the time. I refuse to eat them, but my children love them, you know, where we can just give them a hot dog. And it's just, you know, kind of, kind of that, but you know, not to kill this analogy, but you know, you think about, you think about like that food analogy, you can have the best meal plan. You can have the best backups to the meal plan. You can be fully set on your meal plan. And yet, if you have eating issues, if you have body image issues, if you have eating disorders, that doesn't solve those issues. So that's a, that's a deeper level. And that's where therapy really comes in. Um, and I think the same is true with money. Oh, well, now you just opened up my love language, which is money disorders. There's so much there. And we, it's so needed. We so need more research. We need more conversations around this. We need people to be talking in this because even if people can just identify it, I'm not a therapist, right? Like. Right, I'm not right. a therapist, but I find a lot of times with my clients, it's sometimes even just being able to ask a question um, or even being able to just like name something that gives them, it's like, oh, you're right. That is, yeah. that's not normal. Or, or like, hey, I wonder if there's a different way of thinking about this. And like that alone can be enough to, again, take that away from their identity. So it's not like I am bad with money. It's, you know, or, you know, whatever that may be. But it can just be, it can, it can give them that space to just look at it a little bit differently. And um, so, no, I love that you talk about money disorders. And I think I, I wish there was, I wish that was just commonality across 
every space that I touch because it's, it's such a needed conversation. It's a needed conversation. I think what I hope I want people to hear in this is right. That when we look through it, this lens, like there's degrees of severity, right. Around disordered behavior, thoughts, emotions. So with eating disorders, right. It crosses a threshold that has been researched that says beyond this threshold when people are doing this it's really problematic and that's where the research in financial therapy is really going is saying at what point does compulsive spending become truly problematic at what point does compulsive saving become problematic you're laughing so what's coming up i know i'm laughing because i'm thinking like you're talking about spectrum i'm like right now in my life we are at the I don't know how much money I'm spending. I know it's more than I think it is. And you know what? It's what it is right now. You know, it's that, it's that spectrum that you kind of can flow between and it's just what it is. It, there's, yeah. Well, and so this is that nice, like this is the lead to that, right? Is there can also be, if we look at it from a developmental perspective or a life cycle perspective, we can say, well, okay, Hannah, yep. you're in a season with three very young kids. You're a professional. And I'm going to make a few assumed statements about you, yeah. right? Is you and your husband already have an emergency fund set up. You don't have lots of credit card debt and you have a retirement fund that you've been working on building and you're still regularly contributing mm-hmm. to that. So you have these fundamental pieces in place in your life. And so you can let go of that money consciousness around how much are we spending in this category on this amount this week. Because maybe there was a period of time in life where it's like every day or every week we were observing and looking at checking the budgeting. But in this season of life, that doesn't really make sense. We don't have the capacity for that. But I imagine you have a few check marks in place that say like, oh, we're eating down our emergency fund. We have no money left. Okay, now we really do need to pay attention to the fact that our spending has fundamentally shifted and grown beyond what we can. So I think this, I love that you bring this up because I think there's a lot of people that feel guilty as they go through life changes in life cycle that they have to let go of money patterns that used to be tried and true. Mm, that's what's hard, right? It's about, it's, I was telling somebody recently, I was like, if you would have told 25, so I just turned 37. Um, there, I was like, if you'd have told 27 year old Hannah that I'm spending this much money, I would have been mortified. I'd been horrified. I'd been like, absolutely not. No way. But we also have three children that we're paying full-time childcare for. That's a lot of money. <laughs> and you know what? I am so grateful that we have a good childcare. And every time, so every week we pay her. So I Venmo her. Like we do all the payroll tax, everything like that. But she wants Venmo, so I Venmo her every month or every, <laughs> every, every Thursday. So just have, my financial planner, I feel like I have to clarify that. Right. Yes, I love that. Yes, I love that. But every time I pay her, like it makes me happy. It makes me happy that we are able to help like give that childcare to our kids. Our kids adore her. It makes me happy that I'm able to help give her a job. It makes me all these things where I feel like 10 years ago in my journey, I would have been, it would have been the most painful thing to do that every single week. Whereas now I'm like, oh no, this, this brings me joy to be able to do this. And when I think about that relationship to money, right? Why would it have been so painful for me before? It would have been because spending money is bad. Um, the, the highest virtue is spending as little money as possible, right? And because you know what? That was true for me in part of my life. That was, that served me well. And I'm in a spot now where different things serve me well. And that's hard. That's a really hard thing to, to sense of. I have a client. She's, I adore her. She's in her 70s and she navigated selling her home and moving into retirement community beautifully. Okay, this is a huge uh-huh. struggle for a lot of people. Yeah, <laughs> huge yeah. transition. Yeah. And I, so I called her up and I was like, you know what? I was like, you have done this better than anybody that I've seen. I was like, can I just come over and talk to you for an hour? I just want to pick your brain on, on how you did this because there's so much here. And one of the things that she said was, she's like, you have to be grounded in your reality. And it was so powerful. Um, Because I think about my reality now, and I think about the support structures that we have, the amount of money that we're spending on things, you know, 27-year-old Hannah would have been horrified at 37-year-old Hannah. But I'm like, this is my reality now. And I'm aware of it. To your point, I have my guardrails in place. 
Um, I know, I know my situation. If a 27 year old Hannah would have been spending like 37 year old Hannah, there would have been some big problems, right? Um, so it's just, it's again, that's reality and understanding from a financial planning standpoint. I see clients who don't know what their financial reality is. They don't know. We don't talk about this, right? What's a millionaire? What's it mean to be a millionaire? <laughs> you know, what does that mean? People don't have a good sense of what that reality is. And that's where I think financial planners can be really helpful and valuable of helping really paint that clear picture and saying, hey, like, Hannah, I know you're, you know, do spending whatever, but maybe we need to pull that back because that's not your situation right now. It might be in the future, but right now that's not where you're at. And like, that's where I think financial planners can really play a really powerful role. There's, I mean, one, I'm feeling it very personally and I feel honored to hear that. And, and it's something I need to continue, I am continuing to work on is what is my reality now? Like hearing you say that is yeah. a gift because that's, has been part of my struggle is like my 21 year old firefighter self still shows up a lot. And it's like, I can't believe we're making this much money. I can't believe we're spending this much money. This doesn't feel right. But like, that's a voice of old and it's not in context for the proportionality that's appropriate now. And so what so many of us go through is this aspiration towards more from what I can tell, you know, what are income, net worth. And then we, in that journey though, we lose our groundedness. We lose our orientation on what's appropriate to spend here. What are the social norms here? How much is this? How much is that? And this is what you're, I think what I really want listeners to key into is financial planners can help you get regrounded and contextualize how you can use your money at this new level of income or wealth, right? I mean, kind of the class, you probably had doctors in your practice, perhaps, that they go from residency to fully paid doctor and they go from one number to five times that number or more sometimes. And they go wild. They literally go wild. And because it's like, you know, I think the analogy that I've come up with is like, you're basically taking someone from Japan, picking them up and then dropping them in Germany and not giving them any language, not giving them any like cultural knowledge or competency or practice. And so they're just flailing around trying to do the best they can. And when we move from one social class to another, Sometimes it's a pickup and it's a drop. On both sides. On both sides, right? Either up or down the ladder, right? I mean, there's, I mean, you know, this is like financial planning clients because they're traditionally wealthy clients have kids who can't earn or aren't willing to earn what mom and dad have made and mom and dad are tired of supporting them at the family wealth level. So they have downward migration and they're lost and disoriented too. So I mean, it's it's big psychological process, this whole money thing. Welcome to 2024, and thank you for listening to the Healthy Love and Money podcast. I'd like to take you behind the scenes of therapy-informed financial planning, where we talk about emotions. We talk about retirement plans. We talk about painful family experiences with money, and so much more. There's no need to hide things that leave you feeling embarrassed or ashamed about your financial situation. This year, we watch couples and individuals work through financial anxiety and start talking lovingly about money. We saw couples and individuals take action towards their goals, like closing a business that no longer fit them, paying off debt that felt crushing, increasing their comfort with their realized wealth, and ultimately overcoming some of those financial secrets that have been plaguing the relationship. Ultimately, the best part was seeing smiles return to our clients' faces about life, relationships, and money. This is why we do therapy-informed financial planning. I invite you to make 2024 the year you start therapy-informed financial planning. Check the show notes below to schedule your free 30-minute consultation. You know, I mentioned money is the easiest measuring stick, right? Like, that's easy. It's, It's easy to get to age 65 and say, I have... $1 $1 million, $3 million, $5 million. I don't care how many millions of dollars. Whatever the number is. Whatever the number is, I've been successful, right? Like I've made it. And then your entire life is in shambles. And it's it's not a good measuring stick. Um, I see it all the time. I have clients who make bukus of money and I have, I have clients who don't make a lot of money at all. And I'll tell you right now, there are some, like if I, I, I have 
I have two people very specifically in mind in each one of these camps. And I was like, I would pick that person with low income. I would pick to live their life any day over the other one, any day. We forget, how do you quantify being able to stay, take time with your kids? How do you quantify that? You, it, you can't it, with numbers, right? And, but yet we only look at the numbers. And I think it's such a danger that we have to play. It's this, it's this tension, it's this balance that we play in uh, that that's really you know, what makes life, what's, what, what's make my jobs. It's what makes financial planning so much fun and why I love it so much. Well, and why it's so important, I think if we play that contextual card again, right, is there's people that are compulsively working to make more and more money and build more and more wealth. And what they're not seeing in their compulsivity is the wake of destruction they're leaving behind them. Often in their family, their kids are getting symptomatic. I mean, I can remember being at one training for EMDR, EMDR therapy, which is a particular trauma-focused therapy. And the, the woman I was sitting next to said, well, I work at a residential treatment center for high, very wealthy families. Yeah. I said, well, what's the biggest issue that these kids have? And they said relational abandonment. Because their parents are gone all the time and they're focused on making money and social status and social capital to such extremes that they're not available to their kids. And what I know as a therapist is we're wired for relationship, especially with our caregivers. And you, money can't buy that. It's experiential. It's developed. It's hardwired into our brain and how much our parents are around or not around. And I mean, a snap judgment, but it sounds like, hey, you got to spend a lot of time with your parents. And maybe things weren't always perfect, but like you had relational experience with them. So that, that's a big deal. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's even, yeah, it really is. And you, know, you talk about that. And it's easy. I never want to fall into the trap. And I know that you're not doing this, but like saying like, you know, oh, wealthy people have these problems. It's like, no, no, no. There's some wealthy people who are doing this beautifully, navigating it wonderfully. And there's some that are really, really struggling. And there's some poor people who are navigating it beautifully. And there's some people that are navigating it, even even lately and poor is kind of bad taste. <laughs> but, yes. right. Right. but you know what I mean? But it's like, you know, it's, it's, we tie these things together and, and it's. They're, they're not together, right? Like. There are good and wonderful parents at all levels. And there are some parents that are unfortunately quite dysfunctional and not very helpful to their kids Mm -hmm. at every economic level. No one has a lock on good parenting or bad parenting. I wish there was a solution. If there was a, yes, if there was a solution to this, I'd sign up for it because now I'm like, oh my goodness, (laughs) how do I not screw up my kids? (laughs) Well, and I do think that there's, that's a question that I hear a lot from my, from my clients who are newly affluent or building affluence and wealth. And let me be honest, it's also a question that I'm asking myself because we have the discretionary money to just to buy things without having to think about it as much as what my parents had to be more thoughtful about it. And let me be honest, I got plenty of toys and other little gifts and things I asked for. So this is not a deprivation story. But it's, I know that my parents had to think about those discretionary decisions more than I have to think about them. And so like living well with wealth is not just about you, but it's with your spouse and it's with your kids. And how do we have a positive generational impact? Okay, so I want to shift the course a little bit of this conversation because before we started the, the formal interview, we were talking about mental health and counseling and you said you would be willing to talk about it. So I wanted to ask you, how do you think your own experiences with therapy has positively impacted your relationship with money? Growing up, it was very foreign. Like that wasn't even like a thing. Like if you'd have asked me in like high school or middle school of like about therapy, I'd be like, I, I don't even know that I would have an answer for what it was. Okay. Or it'd be like some extreme, some extreme thing. Um, in college, um, I quite literally got front row seat to a super traumatic experience. Um, I was going to a church uh, for a baptism. So she's now my aunt. She's like, like, she's like only like six or eight years older than me. So like, whatever. But my uncle was date. He was like, whatever. Anyway, we went there for a baptism. Um, she was getting baptized. So she drove up to Waco to get baptized. And so I went there to this church and um, quite literally the pastor grabbed a microphone, was electrocuted and killed. Um, in front of a whole church service of people. And so I'm literally sitting there, front row, 19 years old, 
watching this and being like, oh my God. And so like literally I was in the emergency room because I rode with my uncle who was going to the emergency room because his girlfriend seemed to be fiance was there, right? Because she was like, whatever, because it was like a whole thing. Super traumatic. Um, and then the next day I had written, I had written a paper about the most influential teacher in my life and she died the next day. And so it was this really traumatic experience, just everything. So it was one that I was saw and was literally front row seat for it. Um, but I didn't know him. I, I met him before the service, but I didn't like know him. I wasn't connected to that community. So it was like, I saw a traumatic experience. And then the next one was I had a traumatic experience that I couldn't connect with anybody about because nobody else knew this person, right? So it's a very fascinating, I look back on it, kind of experience. And so I realized that this narrative that I had, okay, I didn't realize anything. I wasn't, <laughs> right. I love 19-year-old Hannah. And I realized <laughs> that there's some, you know, whatever. Uh, and so I look back on that and I couldn't read, I couldn't function, I couldn't eat. Like it was, you know, it was a really traumatic experience. And yeah, really profoundly impacted. Yeah, I thought I was fine. I thought I was going through it. And I was like, oh, I'm good, I'm good. And it was my mom was like, you need to go get help. And I was like, what? Like, I'm fine. <laughs> because I was doing all the things that I knew how to do. You work through it, right? You just work more hours. You just push harder. Like, that's what you do. But it wasn't serving me. And so I did a little bit of counseling in college, not really knowing it. And I got out of college. And I was like, you know, maybe this is something that I need to do. And so that's really where I was like, that's where I think where I can really say, like, I really started going to counseling. It was really to kind of help resolve some of the, just all of those things. and. I remember after one session, I was driving and, um, and like, I I know exactly where it was at. Like I could drive you to the spot right now. And it was like, there was this gray filter that I saw the world on and it was like, it just lifted. And there was the color, there were more colors. The colors were more dynamic. It was like an actual like experience of being like, okay, wow. And so it was really cool. Um, it was a really, really cool and like powerful experience. And realizing, you know, a lot of the things, okay, I was a 19 year old. I had all the answers. I knew all the things, right? Like I, I was pretty certain how life worked and all of that. And what this whole experience showed me is I know nothing, not that I know nothing, but it took all of these things that I had certainty about and broke it. And then I was getting to the point where I had to rebuild that. So that was kind of my first kind of really processing a lot of that grief a lot of like those issues um, around that. And then since then, I've, I always have a sense, I can kind of feel when things are off, right? You know, you just kind of feel when things are off. Um, and so I'd go back to counseling for different reasons throughout, you know, for different, for a variety of things. I just see how it benefits my life. I see how it makes me happier, how it makes me more content, how I can work through things. Um, so like now I'm in kind of a coaching kind of situation. Uh, my husband and I, we did, <laughs> We did a marriage coach. It was a very bad deal. We got fired. Um, so that was not a good experience. Wait, hold on. You're not getting up and down. That, that easy on that one. What? <laughs> I love it that my husband's... I know he's not going to listen to this. So ask away. <laughs> no, he'd be fine with all of it. I promise. <laughs> you got fired by a marriage coach. It was a bad deal. Just... I mean, because... like, I'm asking because I want to know. I'm asking because I care. I'm asking because, you know... You know, people, we have a wide range of experiences with seeking help for marriage. So let's just normalize, like, it doesn't always go great. Yeah. So I think what happened was, do you know the Enneagram? Oh, yeah. Okay. So I'm a seven. My husband's an eight. So he's a challenger. And so we had a marriage coach and she had a program for us to go through. So we were supposed to watch videos, do homework, do this, all this stuff, answer these questions and come to the session with all the answers. And then like, we were going to dive in deep to like go for that. And perhaps it works. And I know it works for people, right? Like I know it does. It doesn't work for us. And so it felt very shoehorned, programmatic. And then when, when I get challenged, I'm just like, oh, you're right. I'm just going <laughs> to... Yeah, sink into the background yeah. that's not the story for um an enneagram eight they're like oh really let's go um <laughs> let's go toe-to-toe why are you back yeah so she was also an enneagram eight so it, it got to be a whole situation and she was a coach she wasn't a counselor so she didn't actually yeah. have formal training in any of this so she had a marriage experience herself and so that's why she was doing this so she was so i think there were some training issues um i think 
I can objectively look back. Um, I think some like neuro, is it what neurodivergent, like some ADHD stuff wasn't appreciated and talked about it and acknowledged. I think that there was a lot of like assumptions made that weren't fair. So we went from that experience and so we took some time off (laughs) and then we worked with another marriage counselor and he was the exact opposite. He was like Mr. Rogers. Like he was just real slow, not slow. So it's not the right word. He's not slow. He's very intelligent. There are more times that I was frustrated because I'm like, when are we actually going to be talking about things? Like, why aren't we actually talking about things? (laughs) So we, we ended it through. So it was about eight or nine months ago. But what I learned, so there's a lot of frustration in that experience for me um, in the fact that like I had expectations of what I thought it should be and I was wrong. And what was really cool is I was, I just was telling Charlie, I was like, I feel like, okay, knock on wood. <laughs> um, I feel like now I'm like the happiest I've been in my marriage. And I think, you know, one of the things you were asking me before was like, what did you learn through the counseling? And I think at various points I've learned, you know, the first two things that I wrote down when you said that, because I don't want to lose these. One is I learned to learn to accept myself. Um, I learned that, you know, 19 year old Hannah, who had all the answers, like she was on this journey and that's where she was at. And she was doing the best she could with what she had. And so I've learned to accept myself in this process. And I think our last like marriage counseling time together has been, I've been learning to accept my husband as he is. And I've been learning to accept myself in that relationship as, as I am. And by doing that, it's made, it's just freed up so much stuff. It's taking out these expectations. I'm just able to just love him exactly the way he is instead of trying to shoehorn or change him because we know that works. Oh yeah, let me tell you, I know how that. Right? Like it doesn't work. You were just getting it all, Ed, here. Um, we went into this marriage counseling and I was like, he needs to go get help for his ADHD. Right. Like that was my, that was my like thing. Right. It's like, you know, like this isn't going to get better. Yeah. This isn't going to get better until he fixes himself. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to be smart about this and I'm going to go read some books so I can understand. So I can like speak his language that then he can go get help. How manipulative is that? Like for real. (laughs) And so I went and read these, I read this book, but it reframed it all. I remember reading this book and being like, oh my God, I think I have ADHD too. And I'm not diagnosed or anything like that, but it entirely shifted this perspective and it shifted this perspective and it just be able, it showed me where I was wrong. It showed me where I was not approaching my marriage in a healthy way. I was approaching my marriage, trying to fix him instead of approaching my marriage of trying to love and support him. And by doing that, by trying to fix him, I was completely blind to what I was bringing into the marriage. And so it was really good. Like it was a really, really good experience that has just helped. I don't know. There's just a level of happiness and satisfaction in my marriage that that's, that's like a whole different ball game. I, I mean, wow. It, it's, I don't know. This may be self-congratulatory, but I was like, I think as people are listening, please just hear in the quality of Hannah's presence. Like I am much more comfortable with myself. Like that's the, like what Hannah's sharing is like a positive outcome of therapy, right? Is and I, look, I true for me. And as you're talking about like trying to fix your partner, I'm like, oh hell yeah! And I still slip into that from time to time. Like, like that's the other thing. It's like just because you go through therapy and you get to this realization and this place of understanding doesn't mean like you hold that posture. It's like no, I still think about you know and get in my head about like, well, she needs to do a better job of blah 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 or not do so much of blah blah blah, you know, whatever. And then like fortunately, like all the therapy starts lighting up in my head and it's like, wait, let's just remember what you can control and can't control and what you need to work on for yourself and giving her that space because yes, I definitely went into therapy with an agenda to fix my wife, especially around money issues. And uh, let me just say that did not go over well. (laughs) Yep. Well, and it's just this idea of just accepting ourselves. And obviously we talked about guardrails. So like, I I know there's outliers on all of these. I I know abusive situation, like for sure, all of those. But I just think, you know, so much, like we're just on a journey. I see myself in the business and I can like, like oftentimes I'll talk about myself like in third person and I'll be like, I was like, you know, it's really interesting watching myself. I'm really struggling with this issue right now. And like before I'd be like, oh, I got to fix it. I got to do this. Like, you know, push harder, work harder. 
And now it's just more like, hey, this is just where I'm at in my journey. I'm a tired mom. Like I'm doing the best I can. And I know that like, you know, it's, there's, I've just learned that sometimes you instinctively think that more pressure solves it. And what I've learned is sometimes by taking off pressure, you can go even farther. (laughs) Amazing, right? Like, I think I was, so rewarding. Yeah. All right. So Hannah, if you have a little bit of time, I want to go down one more little rabbit hole. I have as much time as you need. Yep. We're good. So we've kind of alluded to you having a religious childhood and you know what I come to appreciate. So I'm 42. I've definitely been on my own religious journey of transformation. Save that for a different podcast. But you know, I'm very attuned and interested in people's religious spiritual journeys, how their childhood experiences with religion and spirituality shape their sense of who they are and then how that plays into directly and indirectly their relationship with money. So I've just put a lot of different words, trying to put it concisely there. I'm going to stop talking and see what you picked up on and see what you're willing to share about that. Okay, so I'm going to substitute money with career, which kind of tie together a little bit. Oh yeah, they're really... Yep, so I grew up, you know, very... I mean, that's what we did as church. Um, you know, Sunday morning, Wednesday night, all the different things. Was, and, and like I said, I was a 19-year-old who had all the answers. <laughs> I, knew, I knew how the world worked. Uh, I, I, I was... I look back and I'm like, oh, <laughs> I am so grateful. Number one, that social media didn't exist. <laughs> yes. There's no evidence. There's no proof. I'm, um, I'm so grateful for all the people who were so patient with me. Um, but I had, you know, I grew up with a lot of certainty around things. One of the things that I'll say is that I felt very, it was very authentic to me. Like there was a sense of like, it felt very true. Like there's a lot of times, even now, I don't know how it fits. Like, I don't know what denomination this fits with or that fits with, but I just know it's like, it's true. There's, there's something there that's just, that's just solid and true for me. Um, so I, I told you kind of that traumatic church, like it was truly like in a church, uh, where that, where he died or he passed. Um, but that was really a moment for me of having all the certainty and growing up, it was very, I always describe it as like you were Christian or Catholic. Like they, like there was no delineation beyond Christian, right? It was just like you're Christian or Catholic, a very simple view of that. Um, but that event happened and it basically took, I have very clear memories of driving to the emergency room and I was the one who was completely calm through all of it because I knew that that was impossible. I knew that the God that I knew would not have let that to happen. And then it did happen and it broke everything that I knew. And it really set me back to like, there was a huge, like, I don't want to say spiritual reckoning within myself, but it was all of the certainty that I had up to my life was just gone. But I still had that core thing of like, I know something's here. And so it really set me on a journey of kind of rediscovering a lot of things um, and really saying it really stripped off all the certainty. Um, it really stripped off all, a lot of things that had been built up. I didn't fit in a place. There was, so in college, like I, I couldn't step inside a church like for a year and a half, like just couldn't do it. Like, would, like physically could not do it. And I remember I finally did it. And somebody, like I went out to lunch with like their college minister or whatever. And she's like, oh, well, you know, my husband would really love to talk to you because he was the main pastor. And I was like, okay, like that's what I was seeking, right? I was seeking that connection with somebody to be able to share my story, to be able to put this in context of spirituality. And she goes, I was like, oh, great. When can we schedule this, right? Because I'm like, let's just get this on the books. And she's like, oh, no. When you're ready to accept the truth, let me know and we'll schedule. And I was like, I'm out. (laughs) And so I walked away. But that's really, yeah, right? And so I never went back there, of course. Um, But so it's been a really interesting kind of journey. Um, So now we live in Dallas, which is like, you know, Bible Belt, whatever. Um, but we found a church that we go to, um, a small church. Um, one of the things that I value the most is that there's no expectations of me. And, and I know it sounds bad, but there's no, they don't see me as Hannah, the financial planner. They don't see me as Hannah, the person who can volunteer on this committee or serve this need. I'm just Hannah. And there's never been pressure of, you need to show up for this. It's always been, it's always been very free. And so I can just move through it as I want. If I'm there, they celebrate that. If I'm not there, they're just they just care about me and that's it. And so that's been really, really nice. So it's a small church here. But one of the things that I will say that is more of a recent journey for me 
is, so again, this is where I don't know, again, I don't know how it lines up. I know it's a political topic, but I don't know even where, where it sides it fits or anything like that. I grew up as a woman um, in, you know, in evangelical Christian culture. My job was to help people. Um, quite literally, it was to help people. And when I thought about my career, all through, all the way through college, I never thought about my career. It was always my husband's career. It was how is, how does what I do support my husband? So it's been interesting, like in the last even month and a half, I've talked to, it was, I've talked to a handful, two or three other women who are kind of in that same world that I grew up in and kind of in the same, like we're, you know, connecting now. And, and they're all like, oh yeah, never thought about my career. It was always, how does my, how does this help support my husband's career? The highest value was in being a helper. It was always the virtuous humility. Like it was just like, how do you be humble, 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 humble. So again, that was my mindset. And so I come into my career and I'm finding success and my job in my mind has always been to support other people. I can never be the leader, right? Because the narrative, the script that's in me is to be a good Christian means to be a helper, not a leader. And so it's been very interesting. And um, even, I mean, Ed, you're, you're in our program, right? Uh, you're, you're like, we're, we're I, I have accolades. I have, you know, like all this stuff. I've been put in these positions. And so I started working with this coach um, before my last maternity leave, because we have a whole podcast just on maternity leave and being a mom and all of the things and, and just the identity crises that go with that, that I've had. And so anyway, I was going into this maternity leave where I was like, I really want to, I wanted a good experience. I had a great experience with my first one. My second one was a train wreck. And then my third one, I was like, no, I want to be intentional about this. I want to, you know, all this stuff. And there was lots of identity issues around that. And side, you know, side, side path, a lot of the coming to, to like, do I have value if I'm not working? Am I valuable? Am I valuable to my company? Am I valuable? Like all of those things, right? Like it was really like, I was wrestling through all of this. And then in that, I started really like just starting naming and identifying a lot of these things. The lady I'm working with, she calls them saboteurs. Uh, the saboteurs of, you know, being like, I can't lead. I'm, my job is to be a helper. I can't be a leader. And so one of the big transitions for me in the last six, eight months has been, wait, no, I can be a leader. I don't have to just be helping somebody. I can actually go and say like, this is what I want my businesses to do. And it's played a role in a lot of different ways in that like, I've been treating my businesses, like I have a bunch of little side gigs or I'm just kind of doing things on the side, like no, nobody to know like about these things. And it's like, no, now it's, I run a business. I'm the leader. I'm providing direction. I'm like, it's, it's a whole different framework. And again, like I said, Ed, you're like the only one who, who's even asked me about this, who is getting any of this, but it's, it really is tying to that spirituality aspect of it. Can I be a good Christian? Can I be loving God in a leadership role versus not just always being the helper? And truly I am helping people in all of this, but I was raised to defer. I was raised that my intuition that I was always to submit that to my husband. I was always to submit that to somebody else to get their approval, to see if that was godly, to see if that was right. Versus now I'm like, no, I can trust my intuition. I can lead with that. And that is good. And so that's been a really big like mindset shift for me lately. That's really like playing out in, in all of our businesses. We're about like, truly, I don't think we're about to roll out some stuff that I think is a really, really big deal in our space. It's probably the biggest project I've ever worked on in the next couple of months. I don't think that we would be able to do that if I didn't have this mindset shift of, of being like, no, I can lead. I'm not asking anybody else's permission. I'm not submitting my ideas to whoever is above me in the church of financial planning. I'm saying, no, this is it. And this is, this is what I want to do. And here's what we're doing. So it's a very, like, I know that sounds silly, but it's no, been a very no, real thing not. that's provided a, yeah, a fundamental shift in how I view myself and how I view my work and how I view like what it means to lead in this space. I, I, the laughter is a laughter of knowing and excitement for you and 
just a big hell yes. Like, like from the bottom of my heart. Yeah. Like I look at it now. It's. Yeah. I, I mean, Hannah, can you join me in just like putting your arms out big and wide? Like I'm looking at what you. Do we do here? Okay. <laughs> I'm just doing like a mini little financial therapy. Like, just like. Notice how much space you're taking up. Like I'm a leader. I'm showing up on this podcast. I'm making it. I am publicly saying I'm a leader and I'm not deferring to anybody else. I'm running the show here and I got something badass that's about to get dropped in two months. And I'm like, wait, what is it, Anna? Can you tell me? Because I really want to know. <laughs> I'll tell you after we hit stop recording. <laughs> yes. All right. Fair enough. Great. So listeners, you'll just have to Google Hannah more Amplified Planning to figure out what this big drop is. But wow, no, Hannah, I think for me, I label it courageousness. I don't know if that's what you label it as. What I've come to appreciate or, and think I understand, and, and it's as a male, I'm on the other side of that, but having lived enough time in the evangelical community, and for me personally, having left that, that community... What I I hope listeners can take away from this conversation, no matter where you live on the spectrum, is that our religious and spiritual traditions, whichever one we find ourselves in, does teach us lessons about who we are, what we should do or not do in life, and who, who is in authority or charge. And from my perspective as a therapist, part of our developmental responsibility is to question all of that. And some of it you may readopt on the other side of it and say, yes, I accept that as my own truth. But it's not an inherited truth anymore. It's a consciously chosen truth. And it, it, this, this journey of spiritual maturation is a huge one. And it's not an easy undertaking because while we're having a great conversation about it, I know in my own journey, there was plenty of tears, plenty of uncertainty, plenty of journaling, and a few angry fists. So not, not at any person, just like at the, at the, the universe or whatever the hell you want to call it. So, um, and I just, I genuinely appreciate you sharing that, um, publicly on this podcast and, and allowing me to, to know you in that way. It's huge. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, and you know, so much of it is, it's not a running away from faith. It's just a redefining, not a redefining, but it's just, you know, you were saying like the courageous and I wrote down, I'm, I'm being myself. I'm being who I was made to be that's what I'm doing is I'm just living into that. And that's what's, that's what gives me energy and joy is, is accepting who I am right now. And just the more I can lean into that, that's, it's so fun. It's so free. <laughs> oh, I love it. I, well, I, I already said, I think somewhere in this interview, or maybe if we're here for I would want to talk to you for hours on end, but I'm going to practice good boundaries and we'll bring up this conversation. But I think, you know, ending on this really wonderful note of, I'm pursuing me and continuing to know who I am, what lights me up, what gets me excited a bit. And I'm following that. I'm following my own intuition. I think that's what you're saying. And I think that's a huge message for others to hear. And yeah, it might shake the boots of your partner a little bit if you do that. But if you stick with it, and maybe if you get a little external support to help you through it, it can be a really valuable thing for your intimate relationship to continue to come into your own truth. It'll rattle the cages of your partner for a little bit. But, well, he, what the irony is, is I grew up with this view. He didn't. So for him, I'm just coming to his point of view. He's like, it's finally, you finally got here. Oh, So it's even crazier. Yeah. Like, so it's been self-inflicted. <laughs> we, okay. Hold on. Okay. The interview is not over, Hannah. We're going over time. We just, you know, we just, no, I, I think that this is, it's like, we won't go too deep into this, but for listeners, please know, like, I know this and I forget this, that like we partner with people that have sometimes radically different religious, spiritual backgrounds, traditions, and understandings. And sometimes part of the conscious or unconscious attraction to our partners is because they see the, the world so differently than us. And, you know, my wife and I have been kind of on our own, very zigzag. Like she started with no real religious, spiritual orientation. And I had grown up in a liberal Methodist church and then lived in the American South and was in the evangelical community. And that's where she met me in the story of life. And then we kind of, in our young adulthood, kind of got married under that framework and lens. And she started adopting more of that worldview. And then I went to seminary and I started learning how to ask all these ridiculously hard questions about God and theology. And that just blew my brain apart for a while. And, you know, like I ended up going 
for me personally, at least I've kind of left formal religion at this point. And my poor wife has been kind of just telling me like, what the hell is going on? Like, wait, so what is the belief system here for our family? I don't know. So I share that high level to say like, I love this topic. I think it's really important to talk about and to talk openly and candidly about it without imposing and saying like, it has to be your view or your way of doing it. It's just, and I appreciate you saying like, yeah, my partner actually. One of the things that's given me a lot of comfort and there was a book many years, I don't know. I don't remember much about it because I don't remember these things. It's like, it's like a quirk about me, but it was, it was actually the book shack, the shack or whatever, but they talked about this idea of, I mean, it was in the context of God. I think about my clients a lot in this context of, of, you know, we have to hear things seven times, right? You have to hear things seven times before you hear in the first time. And so I think about this journey of like faith and where we're at. And, you know, sometimes like we need to go through all those kinks and currents, you know, to get through all of this. And what's to, is it like, oh man, we're not there yet. No, we're one step closer. And that's to be celebrated. Like, you know, I think about with my clients. So, you know, pulling this to financial planning, I think about my clients and financial planning. When they, like, they, I say, tell them something and they make a wrong decision. I was like, ah, oh, but they're one step closer. They're one step closer to getting where they want to be. And that's okay. Like, it doesn't have to be, it can be this nonlinear zigzag everywhere. And I think, like, I have friends who've really struggled with, with really, like, in a lot of different ways on this topic. And, you know, they'll go this extreme, that extreme, you know, all the different places. And that's, but you know what, that's just part of the journey. And, but that's just part of it, you know, and I don't know, you know, what's right for them. I, you know, but I know that they need, for whatever reason, they need to experience that and that should be celebrated. And they're one step closer on their journey. And that's, what's important is, 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 is that piece. Well, and I think I I can't miss this because I think you're going to be right there with me as the same is so true with people's money journeys, right? Is like, I have often felt like I'm a financial priest, if you will. And I know people react to that word priest. And so like, I'm sensitive to that. But like that point of like, I think as financial planners, we learn like all the air quote right answers. So then we feel like it's our job to drive people through all the right answers. And really what you're saying about the spiritual journey of transformation, I think it's true of the money journey. It's like, you know, we got to give people space to explore and experiment and to see what does it feel like to invest in cryptocurrency? What does it feel like to do active investing? What does it feel like to do this real estate investing thing? What does it feel like to spend money lavishly? What does it feel like to not spend any money? Right? Like it deepen, widen your experience with money and you will come to a much greater clarity of what you actually want to do with money. But if I sit here and say, no, index investing is the best thing for you and you need to pay down all your debt and blah, 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 blah. Well, we create like a financial straitjacket for a lot of people and that's not very attractive in my book. Yeah, we look for, and I see it's, so we do, I do a lot of training new financial planners and we see this desire for certainty. I got this degree. I need to be certain. I need to be right. And exactly what you said, we need space. We need space to go explore in ourselves, in our careers, um, you know, clients, and then the crazy thing is, once we think you got this figured out, we're going to give it a year and we're going to be in a different spot altogether. So it's, <laughs> it's, all part, it's all part of that journey, right? And what I love about financial planning is we, I've been working with a really, some really difficult cases lately where there's just no right, like it just, yeah. there's not right answer. And every answer just is like, man, this sucks. And it's hard, right? I'm, I'm here as a financial planner walking with somebody on through this. And I'm like, I don't know what to say. I don't know what, you know, like all these things. And I realize it would be even harder for them to do it by themselves. At least they don't have to do it alone. And that's really when I think about financial planning. That's what I think is so powerful. You don't have to do this alone. And like, that, that's it. You don't have to do it alone. Yeah, I think that's so important for, for folks to hear is and finding a planner that can have bring that spirit is I'm with you in the journey. But I am not, I can't do the journey for you. But you have to take the steps up Everest. I'll, I'll walk with you up Everest. And some people have some massive financial Everest to climb. Like some people are just climbing the foothills of the Blue, Blue Ridge Mountains here in North Carolina, which, you know, hey, look, that, that can be strenuous too. But like, I mean, some people have legitimate financial Mount Everest. And like our job is to help you try to climb it as safely as possible and come back down and tell the story about it. 
So, wow, Hannah, you, this has been way beyond expectations. I mean, I try not to hold expectations, just come open-minded, but you know what I mean. Like, this has just been fantastic. Yeah, so if folks are interested in working with you, your firm, you know, how do they connect with you? So Guiding Wealth is a firm. My calendar link is still off since maternity leave, but you can email me at Hannah at Guiding Wealth is the place. You can, yeah, find me online, but yeah, the Guiding Wealth is, is going to be the primary place. And shameless plug, if you are a financial planner or in, on the path of being a financial planner, connect with Hannah on Amplified Planning. She has an incredible externship program that will help you grow through this. Um, so much great offering there. And then we'll be kind of on bated breath. I think this interview will come after your your big business announcement. But people, if you like, be looking for it, I'm sure it's going to be great. <laughs> Hopefully September, we're, September, yeah, September is our, our date. So, <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Hannah, for your generosity of time and spirit today. And we will definitely look forward to talking again soon. Oh, well, thank you, Ed. Thank you for the opportunity to share these stories. It's such a, such a gift for that. And I just such a fan of what you're doing. It's, it's so needed in our world. So thank you for, for just even having the conversations that you have in this space. Absolutely. I invite you now to stop for five or 10 minutes and reflect on what you just heard. Maybe even journal about it. Give yourself the time to consider what you just heard and what it means to you. By giving yourself the time to reflect and integrate what you just heard, it will help you along your journey of learning, healing, and growing towards financial intimacy in your life. Please like and follow this podcast and share with someone that would benefit from being on the journey of financial intimacy. Wishing you healthy love and money, Ed. Mm-hmm.